0: on the Google Play or App Store, or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today.
1: Maui Nui is on a mission to help balance axis deer populations for the good of our environment, communities, and food systems on the island of Maui. They've shared over 126,000 pounds of nutrient-dense protein with the Maui community. Secure your spot now. Become a Snack subscriber and join in helping to build more resilient food and ecosystems on Maui. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com and use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order.
2: And so I get to looking at the direction she's coming, and I see big old horns coming. They look like those Texas bucks that go straight out with big tines going up. I mean, he was the biggest deer I guess I've ever seen
3: on hoof. Half hour into the hunt, I looked up, and here's this buck standing, not that far away, coming right down the middle of this strip of beans. And the strip of beans is only like 50 yards wide. And I thought, holy cow, that's one of the biggest bucks I've ever seen.
1: On this episode of the Bear Grease Podcast, we're talking about whitetail deer, but this isn't the typical tips, tactics, and biology that we hear so much. That's useful stuff, and I love it, but the foundation of why that knowledge is even desirable is found in the onion a layer deeper. We want the knowledge because of how valuable whitetails are to us. Whitetail deer hunting culture in this country is uniquely Americana. There's nothing else like it in the world. The sheer numbers of whitetails, their wide geographic distribution, and the liberal seasons, coupled with the rich and unique heritage we have, is unparalleled. And when you factor in fried backstrap with gravy and biscuits on a cool fall evening, you might start to understand the American Revolution. It wasn't about taxation and representation or tea. It was about some hillbillies not wanting to share their backstrap with the king. <laughs> Brothers, we found ourselves in the ditch and we're only on the intro. Anyhow, my first love was undoubtedly whitetail hunting with coon hunting rolling in tight on the dew claws. And we've got a compilation of storytellers on this episode, many of which are familiar voices in the Bear Grease stratosphere, and a few are new. We've got big bucks, little bucks, missed bucks, bristling, grunting, running bucks, clicking bucks, and bucks falling in holes. But one thing's for sure, you're not going to want to miss this one.
4: And out of the corner of my eye, I see movement again. And that's when one of the biggest bucks that I've ever seen by hunting walks out. Just a big-bodied eight-point buck walks out.
5: I walked under the deer, and I'll never forget this. I said this out loud. I said, wow. I never killed one like that.
1: Storytelling is a sacred thing and foundational to human life. Our ancestors, not that far back, didn't have written language. And so oral storytelling was the medium and conduit of human culture for way longer than it hasn't been. Clay, quit being so dramatic. I'm not. I'm being serious. The earliest forms of writing appeared around 5,500 years ago on planet Earth which in the big picture of the human story is equivalent to a single page in a book as thick as a car. The Folsom Man, the bros in New Mexico that killed the 32 bison with unique stone points, were alive 5,000 years too early for books. So for them, storytelling was the architecture of their world. It carried their values, their worldview, their thoughts on divine power, their practical knowledge for how to live, how to make a fire, how to nap stone, where to camp, what to eat, when to run, when to fight. Humans physically talking to humans carried our culture for a long time, a long time. And this culture that I speak of is the platter on which the very thing that makes us human sits upon. We deeply value the wild beasts, but our differences from them are so steep it's clear that we're different than the beast. We're separate from him. Deep cognition of our surroundings, and awareness of the past, a deep longing to understand the future, making tools, recognition of beauty and art, and altruism, all these things are diagnostic of humanity. Storytelling isn't just about relaying the natural events of a moment, though we gain relevant information from stories, lots of it, but they carry a sediment load full of meaning. These stories tell us who we are. They give us identity. They tell us what's valuable. They highlight what's honorable and what's detestable. They give us instruction, advice, and warning. They entertain us. And storytelling highlights leaders inside of communities and tribes. It was very much that way with the Native Americans, and really is still that way today in most places in the earth, Part of being a chief was being able to talk the big talk. They honored those whose stories inspired people. Stories are everything to us, and they still are today, even deer stories. This collection of whitetail deer hunting stories is so ridiculously rich in value, I struggle to find the words. Every one of these men that tell a story emit a frequency that is part of the sound of my life. So this stuff didn't happen to me, but these stories are personal to me. Some of these guys I've known my whole life, and others are relatively new friends. But I love them all. This first story comes from my friend from western Arkansas, Randy Longlegged Step. I've known Randy since grade school, and we were the founding members of an elite invitation-only club in our high school we called the Timber Scouts. Basically, all we did was go camping. Never any alcohol, just good, clean fun. Randy's hunt took place on public land in Arkansas, and I think you'll be surprised how it ends.
4: So a lot of your hunt stories are probably going to be about really great hunters that put a lot of preparation into their hunt and really go after a deer they've seen on camera or have seen. My story is not that at all put some context in my story it kind of starts with work. I work retail and work a lot of hours in the fall especially toward holiday season and this particular year I think it was 2015 we had inventory in the middle of October so it really cut down my ability to go scout for good hunting places uh, or even really to go archery hunting. Muzzle loading season was right in the middle of inventory week And I just decided I needed, I needed some relief from work, needed to get out and just kind of enjoy a day off after working for so many weeks and days in a row. And I mentioned it to uh, Scott Brown, who I worked for at the time, who I consider to be one of the, the best hunters around. And he thought about it for a while and I didn't ask for a place to go, but he just suggested, Hey, I know where you should go. There's this great place that usually produces good bucks and you should know how to get there because we'd gone the previous turkey season and listened for turkeys up in the saddle. I said, you know what? I I think that's a good idea. Uh, I don't have anywhere else to go, so I'll I'll go give that a try. So when day was over, I got off at like eight o'clock at night and got home and rushed to put all my hunting gear together. And I'm usually real meticulous about having everything planned out and ready. I grabbed my My powder, my extra powder, and my slugs, and I keep them in those little decks tubes, and I went to bed. I got up early the next morning with what I thought was enough time to get out there, get on the top of this saddle on the mountain. When I got out there, I'd forgotten that there was a bunch of down pine trees everywhere that you had to kind of snake your way through to get to the spot where you start to climb up the ridge. And the ridge was very, very steep. So I kind of slowly made my way up it because it was really warm that morning too. So I realized how out of shape that I was also climbing up that. And I started realizing that I could start to see the first little crack of daylight coming and I wasn't in that low spot yet. And I wasn't going to make it because I didn't know exactly where it was with a headlamp on. And I was going to pick a tree and do all of stuff in the dark. And I said, you know what, I need to, I need to make something happen right now. So I kind of stopped where I was looked around, and I noticed a really defined game trail. I mean, you could ride a mountain bike through this trail as much as it was getting used. I thought, okay, let me check the wind. So I checked the wind. I was like, okay, perfect. I can get above this trail a little higher up the hill and watch the trail. And that trail's headed to that low gap I was going to get to. And this will just have to work. And I'll just have to pray that I've got a good enough view when the sun comes up that I could get a clean shot off. But I know I can at least hunt that trail. So I did all the work getting up in the tree and getting all my stuff. And then once I got up there, I think I was smart enough to actually bring an extra shirt to change into. And then I pulled the Gary Newcomb and sprayed myself down with the scent cover. And then I sat there for a few minutes. And as I sat there, the sun started to come up. And I kind of got mad at myself. I was like, you know, I've ruined this hunt already. I'm sweaty. I'm not where I'm supposed to be. I don't even know if I am might have a good shot. This is going to be a waste of my time. But I'm here, so let me just—I'll just enjoy being outside. And I sat there for about two hours with nothing. Didn't hear nothing. Thought, you know, I'm going to give it one more hour, and then it'll take me about 45 minutes to climb out, and then I'll go home. It's like this is this is just going to be a bust. I I just probably would have killed one if I'd have been in the saddle. Is what I thought. And not more than five minutes later, I heard the loudest—what I would call a growl, but it wasn't really a growl. It was just. A loud noise, and I had no idea what kind of animal did it. My first thought was, all right, there's about to be a bear walk down this trail. Uh, It's going to go from a deer hunt to a bear hunt. So I turned, aimed my gun, started looking down the trail, and out of the corner of my eye, I start to see three does kind of walking the top of the ridge right above me, just grazing their way around and kind of easing through. And I watched them until I had to swing around the other side of the tree and watch them until they went completely out of sight. And they never winded me, which is, they should have, but they didn't. So I thought, well, that's pretty good. But I need to focus my attention back on this bear that's going to come down the trail because there's still something down there. I don't know what it is. So I turn my gun around, and I'm watching, and out of the corner of my eye, I see movement again. And that's when one of the biggest bucks that I've ever seen by hunting walks out. Just a big-bodied eight-point buck walks out. I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, I'm on him. I already know where this doe went. So I move my gun right to where he should have went. He walks right into it. I squeeze the trigger, and nothing happens. I forgot it was a double safety gun, and I hadn't undone the other safety. I quickly undo the other safety. He's moved by that point, so I have to swing around the other side of the tree. I've got one more chance to shoot this buck. I point the gun where those does had gone, and he walks right into the perfect spot, and I pull the trigger. When you hunt with a loader, you never know what you're gonna get when the smoke clears. When the smoke cleared, he was down on the ground doing his final kicks, and I was like, oh, I got him. And then he quit kicking. I thought, he's down. I've killed this big eight points, the biggest one I've ever killed. So I texted two people immediately. I texted Clay Newcomb and Scott Brown. And told him that I've killed this big buck on this mountain. Well, while I'm texting Scott, that deer starts to kick just a little bit. And when he does, he's on such a steep slope, he starts sliding a little. And then he would stop. And I'm texting this to Scott, and he's like, well, you better go ahead and reload just in case you need to put another shot in him just to finish him off. That's whenever I made a, a realization that I made a huge mistake. I had grabbed two tubes of slugs and no powder. So I had nothing that I could finally dispatch this deer with. And then I'm starting to panic because as he kicks a little bit, he slides further down the mountain. At this point, he's even with my tree stand. He's under my tree stand. And I'm convinced that it's it's a fatal shot. He's going to die, but the humane thing to do is to put him down while you see him. So I call Scott and I'm like, hey, you know where I'm at. I need some more powder. You're going to have to bring me some powder. And he informs me well, let that deer get down the hill away from you, climb out of your stand, stay a good distance away from him, but don't lose sight of him. I'll find you in the woods and then we'll take care of it. No sooner than I hang up the phone, he makes one more kick and just really starts sliding off down the hill. It's almost like he's on a sled. And then all of a sudden, he just disappeared. And I'm dumbfounded because I can see further down the mountain. But this deer all of a sudden just fell off a cliff and disappeared. And then I heard a water splash echo, like if you dropped a rock in a well. And I thought, what in the heck is going on? I'm on top of a mountain. What? There's not even any water up here. So I climbed down and I walk over to where I'd last seen him. And I realized there's a mine shaft right there and he had slid off when he gained momentum and slid down he'd fell 15 to 20 feet down into a mineshaft hole and landed in just a little bit of water in the bottom luckily he was expired at this time so i called scott back It's like well we don't need any powder at this point but we got us a problem because i don't know how we're gonna get him out About an hour later, Scott showed up and he brought some rope and some other stuff. We didn't know if we're going to have to call more people or get a come along or what we're going to have to do. We had to figure out how to get him out. So Scott was able to lasso one side of his antlers and we both grabbed onto the rope and started pulling. And as we did, it kind of cranked his head to the side and his antlers were hitting the, the the rock edges and we chipped just a little bit of his main beam off realize we can't do that we're going to totally snap off an antler if we do that so we drop him back down then we decide if we lasso him on both sides of the antlers we can pull in opposite directions and hoist him straight out of the middle when he won't touch anything so we kind of wrapped the ropes around trees we pulled in opposite directions took everything we had because this is this is a big body deer once he got to the edge i wrapped my rope around tied it real quick and I ran over and grabbed his antlers and just kind of anchored myself in until Scott could get over there to grab also because we didn't want to fall in the hole with him because if we did I don't know if anybody else besides Clay knew that we were out there dealing with a deer in a in a mine shaft we heaved that thing out of there and when it did we were just totally exhausted it took everything we had to get him out of that hole that's when the work began getting him down off that mountain around all those trees so Later, I did some research and realized that throughout the mountains, there are a lot of mine shafts and test mines. And I believe what they were looking for was manganese. There there was a time when they thought that there was manganese here and that they really went after it for a short period of time. So one crazy thing about that mine shaft is I took my kids hiking up there just a couple years ago in the springtime. And that mine shaft was completely full of water and there was a fish swimming in it. So, nature's crazy.
1: A fish in a mine shaft that was completely unconnected from any other body of water? Incredible. And that's a great deer story. This next voice that you're gonna hear, you will for sure recognize because it's none other than my friend, Steven Renella. This story was told by his father to him, and just a little background, Steve was born in Michigan, relatively late in his dad's life. Frank Rinella was a World War II vet and was often looking for lessons to teach young Steve. This was one of them.
0: This is a dear story that didn't happen to me, and it didn't happen to my dad. However, my dad would tell it all the time, and it was a... Dear story that he would tell, and what it was meant to be it was meant to be a don't give up story. He had my dad used to have a yeah, he had a lot of stories he would tell that were all had served a purpose. For instance, if he was trying to explain an optimist and a pessimist, or at times it would be the difference between a rich kid and a poor kid. I'll tell the rich kid, poor kid version real quick. He would say that if you took a rich kid and put him in a room full of manure. He's just going to sit there and cry. But if you take a poor kid and put him in a room full of manure, he's going to start digging because he'll be thinking, with all this manure, there's got to be a pony in here somewhere. Now, here's his don't give up deer story. And this happened to a buddy of his. This is the guy he used to talk about all the time. And my dad started, you know, like bow hunting is old, right? I mean, bow hunting, you know, on this continent, people have been hunting with bows four or 5,000 years. Interestingly, bow technology spread from the north southward the people that came over much later than you know much later than the Athabascans the hunters that came over that became Eskimo and Inuit hunters who came over much later than other Native uh, American Native Alaskan groups they probably carried some kind of archery technology that eventually spread southward so people didn't bow hunt a long time but then there was like a long 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 time when people didn't bow hunt and modern day bow hunting kind of became a thing in the 40s and 50s. And my dad was a very avid archer back in those days. This is when people were hunting with long bows and recurves, but it wasn't called trad archery. It was just archery. My dad's buddy is driving home from work and he sees a deer out in this field where he's been seeing deer lately. And he decides he's going to try to sneak up on this deer and get a shot at it with his bow. So he takes his shoes off, right down to his socks. My dad always liked to point out they're white socks. And he does his stalk up to the through the woods, up to the field edge, and launches an arrow out there. And he can't tell if he got a hit or not. And looks and looks and looks, can't find his arrow. So he decides to start looking for blood in the waning light, okay? It's getting dark out. But he convinces himself that he missed, and he starts cutting little half circles just to check for blood and doesn't find any blood. And eventually goes back to his car, puts his shoes on, drives home. Well, as my dad likes to tell the story, that night the guy's getting ready for bed, takes his shoes off, takes his sock off, and what does he see on his sock? A couple little blood stains on his sock, and it wasn't from cutting his foot. And he rushes back out there, finds his deer. What do you think about that, Clay Newcomb? Never
1: give up. Mr. Ranella, we have all taken note of the core message of this story, and we thank you for it. Never give up. As a parent, nothing keeps me up at night more than the idea of something happening to my children. But if something happens to me and I'm not around to protect them, that's a true nightmare. Having term life insurance for myself is crucial because I can rest easier knowing my children and loved ones can have some financial support even if I'm not there. That's where Fabric by Gerber Life comes in. Having life insurance just gives me that extra confidence throughout the day, knowing that my family will be financially cared for if something bad happened to me. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com slash bear. That's com slash bear. M-E-E-T Fabric.com slash bear Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company Not available in certain states Prices subject to underwriting and health questions Ready to win Mother's Day And cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame Preloaded with decades of family photos She'll love looking back on these memories And seeing what you're up to today Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Newcomb has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high-quality The Aura Frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme Genetic Stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease, and drought tolerance. The next voice you might also recognize if you're a Bear Grease regular. Andy Brown was on our Turkey Story episode and our Genuine Outlaw series about Dell and Charlie Edwards. You might remember Andy's laugh. If you haven't listened to that series, it's probably one of the best stories we've ever told. Andy is from the mountains of western Arkansas and is a heck of a deer hunter and woodsman. This is a tour through Andy's fall of 2016 on public
5: land, and it ends with a non-typical surprise. This, this is probably 2015 or 16. I had an area that I really wanted to go look at. It was right before muzzleloading season and just look for deer sign and really see if there was any acorns that made in on the north side of the mountain. And so I called my oldest son. He was, he was working. And I said, look, when you get off work today, I said, if you don't mind, pick me up on the highway North. And, uh, he said, where? And I told him, he said, I'll be there anyway. So I, I drive up on the top of the mountain and went off wrong. I wanted to go off on this big leg that goes off the mountain, but I went off wrong and I got in the holler and where I went off, it was just, it just straight up and down had to side hill it out through the side going west and one foot up and two feet back and grabbing hold of trees try to hold on to and finally hit the leg and started off the mountain and uh didn't go 100 yards till I jumped a really nice buck deer of course at that time when I went off all I had was pocket knife I didn't have a gun didn't have a bow didn't even take a 22 with me killing squirrels with I just I was on a mission to try to make it out before dark <laughs> where i wanted to go so anyway jumped a real nice eight point buck and one of them that you know how they are when you don't have a gun or tame and uh, so i fell off the leg and and there's a i think the prettiest prettiest saddle that there is in the world when i got into the saddle there wasn't a lot of deer sign but the spotted oak acorns, it was just raining acorns in there. And, of course, you know what that means. The bear, There was a lot of, there's a lot of bear sign right there where I was at. So, anyway, I just kept on plugging. I fell north, went up through some rocks, and fell off on the backside. And the white oaks uh, that year really hadn't made it all. But, anyway, I fell off the mountain, and I just kept on walking and looking and, and just wasn't finding any deer sign at all. And... um it's a long ways, and on the low end of it, there's a couple more little saddles in there that I wanted to look at, and and uh, just before I bottomed out, uh, I did have my binoculars, and I'm looking at trees, and you know, I I like to look and see what kind of acreage they got. Of course, you didn't have to look. They were trying to knock you in the head going off there, but anyway, that particular year, it was really dry, just like it's been this fall. I mean, there wasn't no water anywhere, and uh, there was a pond, it was a game pond that I really wanted to get to because i figured that everything in the world would be watered there bear deer everything and just so happened when i fell off i hit it just right i just crossed the bottom pulled it on the top of another little old ridge and just walked right out to this pond at that time it was real open in there and since then some of the old spotted oaks have fell and it's opened up the canopy and it's just a jungle but anyway i walk off down to the pond i Look on the kind of the northwest side of it, and I could just see a trail coming into it. And when I when I walked around there, I guess every deer in the country were used was using that pond. They just had it muddy where they were the old white mud where they were leaving on that one side. And of course, they was walking all the way around it, and uh, one of the biggest cottonmouths I ever seen, I seen right there that day. I mean, one of them them double biggings. I mean, that you you hate to leave and don't kill. You know, I mean, it's one of those deals. But anyway. When I walked around the pond, there was a buck track in the mud, and I took my pocket knife and I laid my pocket knife down beside it and took a picture of it so I could show Scott how big a track this deer had. It's one of the biggest tracks I ever saw, and walked on out. Scott was waiting on me, and I told Scott, I said, every deer in the country is using that. We need to hunt that. Now this is the week before muzzleload. You know, my intentions was I was going to hunt it one day muzzleloading. Well, you know how it is. Muzzle loading gets here, and you've got other plans, and you go someplace else, and you hunt. Well, we let muzzle loading pass. We didn't hunt it. Okay? But I did take a tree stand up there and hang on the tree, a climber, and left it. Anyway, muzzle loading gets there. It passes. We didn't hunt. Gun season comes. The first week, first two weeks of gun season, we didn't hunt. Well, it gets uh, Thanksgiving. I decide I'm going to walk in there, we need to see before Thanksgiving. So i walk in there and it's just raining acorns right at that pond. And the deer tracks are still there and check my stand. Of course, the has got my stand and tore the seat out of my stand, you know, and I had to fix all that. It's upside down, you know how they do. But anyway, so I call Scott, he, he works a lot and I thought, well, it's tomorrow's Thanksgiving. He may be off. I called him and asked him if he wanted, I said, you need to go hunt that stand. And he said, man, he said, I have. I've got to go in to work in the morning. There's no way out of it. So the next morning I get up, I walk in there. It was cool thing. In fact, I think it was a pretty good frost that morning. And I'm going to say, I think we all agreed yesterday. Cause I went back to that spot yesterday. Uh, we agreed. It's a big mile, but anyway, I got in there early and it was on thanksgiving morning and the way it works out with me is of course we have we have kids and they have families and we have we have uh, grandkids and usually we have our thanksgiving the the weekend before with a family and so usually on thanksgiving it's just tina and i so there's not really nothing going on and i'm a little selfish but i kind of like it that way you know because i think thanksgiving day is a heck of a day to hunt it has been for me over the years Anyway, I walk in there and get up and stand and it's it's the finer morning as God ever made i mean it's there's just a what little bit of breeze there is out of the northwest and it's just enough just to just to shake the leaves just a little bit. I sit up there, and I don't know it's just something about it. The leaves you know thanksgiving week, the leaves are falling you know it's uh, they're starting to fall off the tree, especially when the sun gets up. it seems like they just fall off on frosty mornings and everything was, it was just perfect, and after a while, probably about 8.30, right in behind me on this ridge, this ridge runs north and south, it goes in there, just a leg, it makes off, and I heard a big calamity behind me, and, but it sounded to me like a buck chasing a doe, and it kind of quietened down there a little bit, and after a while, right out from this pond, there's a, there's a saddle, and I caught a little motion, I looked, and here come a seven-point buck, and He'd come off down there. He's probably a two-and-a-half-year-old little deer, and he'd come down and all the doing around and smelling, and he'd go up the ridge and off in the holler and back up, and, and uh, he messed around there for 15 minutes probably right there out in front of me. In a little bit, he just walked off, walked off went west. So it kind of got quiet again, you know, and, and uh, in a minute, I just got to hear something. I could hear I could. I could hear a deer just coming right in behind me just on a mission. Snap, crutch, pow, you know, just coming right down the ridge. And I'm up. I like to get pretty high. I'm probably 23, 24, maybe 25 foot high, and it just kept a coming. I wouldn't move. And about that time, I just looked to my left there, and it was a little nubbed buck. I said, "Uh huh." That's exactly what's Mama's off catting around, and you're you're out here by yourself. And anyway, he messed around there a little bit, and he turned and he went right back down the top of the ridge. And about 10:30, probably, I sat there and soaking it all up i mean it's a it's a fine morning had a lot of confidence you know that makes a whole that makes a big difference uh, i think confidence is everything and you know i had an i had an uncle back when i was in my 20s and 30s that when he when he would take you hunting you packed your lunch because it wasn't one of those where you go hunt till eight o'clock and then come in and drink coffee and eat breakfast and you know he'd always say pack your sandwich and anything he taught me was patience so i'm a type of guy that I can go set a half a day as good as anybody. I mean, I can get there double early, and and I've killed a lot of deer between 10 and noon. Just because of that, everything kind of calamity, everything quietens down. But anyway, I'm sitting there, and so I get out my grunt call, and I grunt a time or two, and, and it's still quiet. But the wind has shifted, and it had switched over to northeast. It was hitting me right in the right cheek. And probably, you know how it is, Ten thirty, eleven o'clock, the wind, it picks up a little bit, but the leaves were crackling you know when they were dry and then uh, over the leaves i was sitting there and i just got to hearing something but i couldn't tell where it was at and then i could tell it was a deer i could tell there was a deer coming i got to looking and about that time i just looked over my left shoulder and i seen him come off the mountain to my left you know how it is with a big buck when you see a big buck you don't have to guess if he's legal you don't have to guess anything with him i said looky here you know and when he come off Clay he was just he was on a mission I mean he was just here he come and he had to drop off the mountain and come up to me and when he dropped off the wind I'm scared to death he's going to win me because what little there was now then was going right to him but there was two or three of them big old bull pines there on the side of the ridge I'm on and he got them dudes between me and him and I couldn't I, I could just see glimpses of him coming up there And I'm thinking, this guy's going to get in my lap, and he's going to win me, and I'm going to let this deer get away from me. And about that time, he just walked out from behind the tree. And, uh, you know, a lot of people don't like to take a frontal shot. I've never had any issue with it, especially one shooting between the front shoulder and and the chest. I killed him dead in his tracks. I mean, he never wiggled. But he was only about 15 steps, <laughs> you know. I mean, he's way too close. I mean, I just smoked him. I said, "Wow," and I could see the big. I could see the big G2 on the left sticking up there, and I said, "Man, that's a that's a good buck deer, you know." And by this time, it's you know, it's 10:45, something like that. And I'm in there by myself, a mile in there by myself, and so I shinny down and I walked under the deer. And I'll never forget this. I said this out loud. I said. I said, wow, I never killed one like that. I don't really know how many points he is. I, I'd, he's got all kinds of junk on the end. I think he's about a 19 or 21, however you want to count those. You know how us are, if you can hang a ring on them, you can count them as a point, you know. But he's a mainframe 10. Uh, we weighed him, uh, we were able to weigh him uh, with the guts in him. He weighed 189 pounds and that, that's a, that's a big buck for down here, I mean. I know they get bigger than that, but I don't see a lot of them over 200 pounds. I said all that to say this, and what's kind of funny about this is I went in there hunting a deer with a foot big as a pocket knife, and I killed a deer that that wasn't the same deer because his foot wasn't near as big as the one (laughs) that I'd taken the picture of at the pocket knife.
1: I love the comprehensive way Andy tells the story, and what an incredible deer. Killing a buck in these mountains is an accomplishment, and I tip my hat to anyone who can do it consistently. This next story comes from a guy who lives in Minnesota, approximately 810 miles due north of Andy Brown. Tony Peterson works for Meteors Wired to Hunt Whitetail brand and is a veteran whitetail bow hunting Yankee. And I love this guy. This is the story. Of his first big buck in his home state of Minnesota, the fourteen point in the beans.
3: Man, I gotta set the stage for this because up until 2006 in my bow hunting career. So I started when I was I was 12 years old. So I started bow hunting deer in 1992, and I had you know I, I went through the typical progression of you know killing killing young ones, killing does, finally killing a few bucks, moving up to the two and a half year olds. But I got just plateaued on the two and a half year olds. Like I couldn't, I could not kill a bigger buck. And what it did to me is I started to get buck fever insanely bad. I mean, I always had it, I still have it to this day, but I always had it. But when it came to, you know, even a deer that was like 120, 125 inches, it was like, I was never gonna make that shot correctly. And in 2005, I had already gotten a few shots at big ones and, and blown it. And I had, a, I had a hunt in 2005 where I had two really big bucks come in within 10 minutes of each other and I missed them both. And I just, in my head, I was like, this is never gonna happen. You're never gonna be able to do this. So fast forward to 2006, and this is the first year of my life that I couldn't hunt the opening weekend in Minnesota. You know, it was always kind of a tradition with my dad and I, and you know, something that meant a lot to me, but I had just got married. I had moved to the suburbs of the twin cities. So I was miserable there, especially coming from a little dairy farming community in Southern Minnesota. It was a, it was a culture shock for me to have a million people in my backyard and not have the places to hunt that I was you know, used to from growing up. And then on top of that, one of my wife's friends who I don't even really know that well got married on bow opener and I had to go and so the whole opening weekend I was kind of ticked off but whatever I had I had a bad attitude at that time because I knew my season was going to be rough I wasn't going to get that much time I had a job I hated that I would only get one day off a week typically and so you know to make the two-hour drive down to hunt was just not that feasible most of the time so anyway bad attitude bad job everything my world was kind of turned upside down and I was I was just setting this mindset that I was like, I'm not going to kill a big one ever. Like, it's just never going to happen for you. You're going to be a a scrapper shooter your entire life. But on the second weekend of the season, I ended up working Saturday morning and having a chance. I figured if if I finished work, I could hop right in my truck, grab my brand new golden retriever puppy, drive down to southern Minnesota, hand the puppy off to my buddy's girlfriend, scramble out to the woods, and I could get an evening hunt Saturday night and then hunt Sunday and then go home. So I I flew out of there, grabbed that puppy, drove way too fast down there, just knocked on the door, handed Amy my my little retriever pup, and drove right out to the woods. And it happened to be one of those nights where it was kind of like drizzly, and you know not not really raining hard, but kind of wet, just a little bit falling here and there, gray skies, like a perfect day to sit on the beans. And you know it was September, so I figured this is this is kind of a no-brainer. This is what I'm going to do. But I, I was almost out of time. and so I ran from my truck all the way back to the stand, which is maybe I don't know, half a mile, three quarters of a mile, climbed up in there and I remember just like setting up and getting my release on and thinking, you know, there's no way. Like there's no way you're gonna get a deer tonight. You're in here way too late. You probably blew the field out. It's so like I, I kind of was just sitting there wallowing in my self-pity. And, you know, half hour into the hunt, I looked up and here's this buck standing, not that far away, coming right down the middle of this strip of beans. And the strip of beans is only like 50 yards wide. And I thought, holy cow, that's one of the biggest bucks I've ever seen. And he's on his way toward me. And I just could not believe he was not only there, but he was the only deer in that field. First one to come out. And as I'm watching this deer, I'm thinking, okay, he's going to he's gonna keep following that row and, you know, maybe pass by it like 25 yards. Well, this deer never looks up at me and ends up just, for some reason, crossing a bunch of the rows and browsing right at me. And so he gets to, like, 10 yards broadside, and I mean, up to this point, every big buck in my orbit had got away. Like, I had had buck fever so bad, I'd shoot over them, I'd rush it, and this deer's standing there a gift, and I draw back and shoot... And it's all a blur, you know, like it's one of those things where you're like filling in the details afterwards, but he runs and stops in the field and then he takes off. And I remember thinking, gosh, I think I saw blood coming out of his side. And I thought I saw my fletchings disappear right behind his shoulder. And at that point, I'm not very patient now, but at that point I was really not that patient and I couldn't take it. So I got down and went over to where I thought I hit him and there's just blood all over the beans. And it's like this surreal moment where you're like, I think I might have finally killed a big one. And I thought he was just like a 125-inch eight-pointer. I didn't really know what he was other than big, mature. So I start following the blood trail. 100 yards away at the edge of the woods he's piled up and I just remember walking up to him and not only was he's a mainframe eight pointer but he had six stickers and you know ended up scoring I think 146 inches or something just this like otherworldly deer to me and it was such a lesson because I had I had such a bad attitude going into that hunt you know I was throwing that little pity party for not being able to hunt the opening weekend and getting down there late and being so limited I was just in my head. I'm like, you just, you just, you don't have a chance, dude. And it was like such an easy way to feel bad for myself. Plus, I just never thought I was going to kill a big one. And that deer laying there was like, it was like another world opened up for me as a deer hunter. It was like, you can kill these deer. Like they will make mistakes. Big bucks will screw up if you keep going out there and keep doing your thing. And it just, I think about that deer all the time when I'm hunting now, because if I get a bad attitude or I screw up or I bump one or miss one, it's so easy to slide into that negative mindset. And I always think about that 14 pointer in the beans just making every bad decision possible and just offering himself up to me. And it always keeps me going. It always makes me feel good because that deer just showed me what was possible with this stuff. And I just, I love, I love that hunt and that experience for it because it, it literally changed the arc of my. No, my hunting career, but also my work career. It just, it was something so special to me.
1: Love it, Tony. Great hunt, brother. This next voice you'll recognize for sure. James Lawrence is my Arkansas backwoodsman, saw milling, Rockland, horse riding, big woods, whitetail hunting mentor. He's a member of the Bear Grease Hall of Fame. And if you remember, the third episode of Bear Grease was called The Shedhorn Buck of 1962, which was all about James. This is a short story, but it's one of his
6: favorites. It's probably mid-80s, and most of those, most of those years I hunted by myself. 90% of the time I don't do a whole lot of setting, I usually just still hunt, slipping through the woods. And I like the, the wind has to be right to hunt a certain area. Wind was good that morning. I left my truck, crossed the river, and started in. And the direction I was going, the wind was perfect for me. I started up the hollow. There's a big mountain on my left, and there was a ridge on my right that heads and turns into the mountain. So this is the easiest access the way the wind was blowing. I eased up this hollow, and uh, to go back a little bit. In the past, when I would kill a deer, I would uh, always skin the hocks off. Put them in a baggie, take them home, and freeze them for scent. If I killed a doe with the archery, a lot of times, if I could, I'd save the bladder and use the natural scent, and that's what i had done this day. I get in the area where I was hunting, I stop, sit down, I tied those buckhocks, one on each foot, on my heels, my boot. Started up, come around a big holly tree, just a few yards from where I'd put the hawks on, and there was a fresh scrape. Fresh and what I mean fresh, fresh, fresh. Tell, I mean, he dug it out. Eased on around that, dragging those buckhogs, I get up a little ways and I was going up this holler to my right, and I was walking in the holler, just stepping on rocks, trying not to make any noise. When I could see the top of the ridge, I decided to get up on top of the ridge, get out of the holler and get up on the ridge. Easing along, stopping, leaning up against the tree, watching up ahead of me, wind was still good in my favor. I hear something behind me. And like I said, I just left the holler. I probably, I don't know, 150, 200 yards up it. And I heard something coming off the mountain behind me where I'd come down in the holler. And by this time, didn't know what it was. And then I turned and hear this nice buck was coming up the mountain. His mouth was open. He was making, every time his feet hit the ground, it was, arr, arr, arr. Never heard that. It wasn't a grunt, it wasn't a growl, it wasn't a snort. His mouth was open. The hair on his neck was standing out. Which made him look a lot bigger Hair running down his back was standing up And before I could get on him Got my rifle up And it was a nice buck And I couldn't get on him And he went out of sight Well when he went out of sight I knew that I could see the end of the holler Where it tied onto the ridge He didn't come out Everything got quiet And a little bit I heard him again Coming down the bridge Got on my trail And here he come Same way mouth open, hair on his neck which I'd never seen before. And I mean he was seriously mad. And I got my rifle up, him running. I got on him and I I squeezed off around, though another one in. He come on around and that shot put him down. And then everything <laughs> And I never get scared in the woods, never get bothered in the woods. I always I'd never, ever, ever experienced anything like that. And he went down. Then I realized he was following the scent that I'd put on. And I used the scent after that, but I, didn't, I don't use it like I did that time. A person could get uh, in a bad position with a buck with fresh deer hawks tied on him and going through the woods and having a buck. You get in his area, it's scary. Bothered me. Killed a lot of deer, and I've never been bothered like that.
1: How'd you get that deer out of the woods?
6: I done like I always do. I field dressed him, and then I, I done the shock pouch, tied his feet together, and he was, it was all downhill, so I didn't have a problem getting him out. I was back in a pretty good, pretty good ways from the truck. He was one Tell me them. how
1: you shock pouch one.
6: You get it like you always do, field dress it. I peeled the go around the uh, dew claws on the deer and skin it down to his first joint, the knee joint, and I popped that joint off, do all four legs that way, and... Leave the claws on, because so that makes it easier. And then you just take the right front foot to the left, hind foot, tie them together just as tight as you can, and do the same to the other. Sit down and run your arms through them, and then lean forward and get up, and got your rifle in one hand, got horns in the other. Carry them out on your back. Carry like them out a backpack. on my back. Yeah, I carry that one out. It's a whole lot easier than dragging one. How long would it take you to shock pouch one? The time to, gut just it to get it and shock tied. pouch it, just, just a few minutes. Who taught you how to do that? Basically, my grandmother and my grandmother's uh, brother. Love it, James.
1: If you want to see a video of how James taught me to shock pouch a deer, go to themeeteater.com and search for shock pouch a deer, and you'll find it. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? Yeah, me neither like the importance of a will or college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning. We have to know these things, but how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me. It just gives me security in knowing that if anything happened to me, my family would remain financially stable in my absence. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You can be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meatfabric.com bear. That's meatfabric.com bear. M E E T, fabric.com slash bear. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Ready to win Mother's Day and cement your reputation as the best gift giver in the family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. She'll love looking back on these memories and seeing what you're up to today. Even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep updating mom's frame with new photos, so it's the gift that keeps on giving. And this is not a joke. Juju Newcomb has an Aura frame, and we share photos, and they're incredible. Also, my mother-in-law has one. We have them. They truly are really good, really high quality. The Aura frame is easy to set up. It takes just two minutes to set up a frame using the Aura app. It also adjusts the display depending on light levels in the room to maintain the true color of your photos. For real, the digital screen is amazing. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame when you use code BEAR, B-E-A-R, BEAR. That's AuraFrames.com. Use code BEAR at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Whitetail Institute launched the food plot revolution in 1988 with a concentration on research and real-world testing of forage products specifically for whitetail deer. Whitetail Institute's research and development team of agronomy experts provide effective, personalized service. I've been using Imperial Whitetail Clover for a long time in a food plot back behind my house. In 2007, I killed the biggest buck of my life over an Imperial Whitetail Clover small quarter acre food plot. Imperial Whitetail Clover is the only clover scientifically developed through years of selective breeding. Clover Extreme genetic stability provides extreme cold tolerance, disease and drought tolerance. My oh my boys, you're in for a treat now. The voice, cadence, worldview, and frequency of this next storyteller is core to the energy of Bear Grease, because it's none other than my own sweet dad, Gary Believer Newcomb. Dad showed me how to be passionate, to live by a value system, to have confidence in my identity, and to work hard. But maybe most relevant to this story, he taught me how to look for them acorns. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this Arkansas public land story. But every time, I'm on the edge of my seat. This is the story of the clickin'
2: buck. You know, I've hunted since 76, and, you know, I really didn't know how to deer hunt. I kind of taught myself. I don't have a lot of patience, so I, I don't kill a lot of big bucks. I kill a lot of little deer. But every now and then, I run into a big buck. And uh, I found this big buck because there was a huge area in a uh, sawdust pile where they had logged. And there was a huge... It looked like a 15 or 20-foot scrape, 10-foot scrape. And so I got to scouting, and I started seeing uh, 4-inch rubs and started seeing normal scrapes, big ones. And then... You know, I went to my M.O. like I always did and found a place where there were acorns. And I put my best setup. you know, I put a lock-on stand 25 feet. Next day, I can't hunt very long, only a couple hours. And I climb up in that stand, a doe comes in. And typically, I would have shot that doe in a New York second. But I thought, I ain't going to do it this time. I, I know the buck's in here and so I got to watching her and she kind of acted like she was in heat and I don't remember what I, I, twitching her tail, doing things that was a little different than other does it's 23rd, I'm going to say 23rd of October and uh, ends up she was in heat probably the only deer coming in, she wasn't in and so I'm sitting there looking around watching her feed and all of a sudden I hear big steps coming, I mean this sucker sounded like a gorilla coming in. You know, I get my bow all ready, and this buck all of a sudden starts going... <coughs> I call it the clicking buck. I would not have even known what that was, but a friend of mine had just bought a clicking call. It was kind of silly. It was a wheel that had little notches in it, and you'd spin it, and it'd go click, 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 click. So I knew what it was. And I go, that's a stinking clicking buck. So I sit there... And I had a real thick pine thicket behind me that deer could move through, but you couldn't see. And then I had this big white oak out here. And then just normal woods around with a few thickets. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm turning the best I could to, get to see if that deer's there. It never shows itself. And then I hear it turn, walk off. Well, about 10 minutes later, a real nice 10-point, you know, 120 class, probably maybe better, maybe not. But a good 10-point came up, and he came up almost under my stand. I mean, he's, he's five yards. If you were to step it, it would have been five or six yards to my shooting side. And back then, and for 30 years, I mean, if it came on on my left side, I wouldn't even shoot at him. I sat down, afraid of heights, and uh, so he's right there, man. And about that time, loops got real popular to put on your strings, and I had a loop on mine, and, and something happened. I had to change string, and I, I just thought, I don't need that sissy stuff. So I didn't put a loop on my bow. And so finally, I sat there and watched him for, it seemed like an hour, but it was probably five minutes, and he never moved. And he had a big tree in front of him, not real big, 10 inches, 8 inches. And so I kept watching him, and he kept staring at that doe. And so finally, he moved just a little bit, and I, and I pulled my bow back, and I was just getting ready to shoot him, and my arrow fell out. So he takes off and the doe take off. Well, so I think, well, that's all the action we're gonna have today. And I needed to get back to town. I guess I'd better get down. And uh, I was about halfway down my ladder and an eight point, good eight point came in. Of course that spooked him. So I went back the next Saturday, only hunting on Saturdays, basically. Well, on the way home, instead of coming by blacktop, I went through the mountains I knew a camp there where these guys were like trophy hunter type guys. I pulled into their camp late that night and I said, told them what happened with that clicking buck. And I said, what what the heck was that? And this guy said, I can tell you exactly. And I've told a lot of people, and I'm telling you, I don't know of anybody that knew what this clicking buck was all about. But these guys acted like they knew. And what they told me ended up I think being exactly right. They said, I can tell you exactly what it is. That is the absolute dominant buck in the area, and he's not going to waste his time chasing a doe that's not completely in heat. He said, in two or three days, he'll be with that doe like glue. So he came in, he sent checked her, he left. Ten Point came in, he's going to follow her, for, you know, he's going to stay with her. Clicking buck leaves. So I come back the next Saturday, climb up in the same stand, and she came in straight to my shooting lane to the left, and I could see her coming from, you know, 40 yards. So she comes in, same thing, acting kind of crazy, eating acorns. And so I get to looking at the direction she's coming, and I see big old horns coming. They look like those Texas bucks that go straight out with big tines going up. I mean, he was the biggest deer I guess I've ever seen on hoof. At the time, I said he was 140, but as I get older and think back and learn more about deer, I'm telling you, he was 150 plus, maybe 160. I mean, he was big. And so, he pulls up broadside, big, huge animal, easy shot, 32 steps, but I didn't didn't know it. it. I mean... I figured he was 30, but I didn't, you know, I, I stepped it off, and he was 32-step. And so he's watching this doe feed. Well, I'm 25 feet up, and I'm getting away with everything. I mean, I, I could move. I could do whatever I want. He had no idea I was there. And of course, I did my scent stuff, not like I told Bear, but, I mean, I just was clean. And so I get to doing this, bending over down to my knees, and, and st- I wouldn't stand up. And I kept looking. I couldn't find a hole to shoot him. There was a hickory tree with yellow leaves, that tells you the time of the year it was, had yellow leaves. And and the limbs coming off of it low were only about 10 inches long, but they all had leaves on them. And so I'd move up on the edge of my seat, and I'd been way over, and finally I saw a hole. But it took me so long to find that hole that by that time, distance wasn't an issue. I mean, I didn't even think about distance. I just pulled down, put my twenty pin on him, and shot right under him. And, you know, now, the bows I shoot now it wouldn't have made any difference. I would have, you know, I mean, they shoot flat, pretty pretty flat. But back then, you had to know 20, 25, and 30. I mean, I just shot under that buck. But uh, it, it was a thrilling morning. And, they, you know, I had a couple other mornings that were just about as thrilling. But that would probably probably be the second most exciting hunt I was ever on. The other one was when I was really a rookie and I had 11 does come in at different times and, um, it was pretty thrilling. And, and what's kind of interesting to me, our own inner makings and hidden mechanisms is that the longer I get away from that date, the more I regret not clicking my brain in and shooting that deer at 30 yards. I mean, it really, I mean, he, he would be a wall hanger deluxe.
1: I think these stories of failure stand out in our minds for a very specific reason. A father's story of missed opportunity is supposed to equip the son not to miss. The story still stings me 25 years later, but the clickin' buck won't be lost in Newcomb lore for generations. This last whitetail hunter needs no introduction. Mark Kenyon is my friend and colleague at Meat Eater, and he heads up the Wired to Hunt podcast, which is a diehard, nuts and bolts podcast about whitetail deer hunting, and you ought to be listening to it if you're a whitetail man. Mark is a meticulous, hard-hunting dude, and he came to Arkansas last year with me and James Lawrence. Kill the Buck on Public Land. And you can watch that hunt on the Meteor YouTube channel on Mark's new series, Deer Country, which is very cool. This is the story of Mark's first buck on his family's land in Michigan.
7: It was mid-November, and we were in northern Michigan at my family deer camp, my favorite place in the world. And it was one of those days where The air was crisp, the leaves crackled, snow was just starting to fall. It was one of those perfect days that you dream of as a deer hunter. And I was a young man, still a teenager, heading out for the first evening hunt of gun season. And I was walking out to my tree stand with my grandpa, GP as I called him set off from the cabin. We walked across the first little field. We head across the bridge. We get to the second little field, and this is where GP's blind was, the place where seemingly, in my mind, legends were made. All of these stories he told me took place in the second field. He walked to the edge of it, and this is where we were going to part ways. And as we set off, Grandpa looked at me, and GP said, All right, Mark, good luck. You can do it. And He went off his way, and I went off my way. And I set off along the creek, heading back along what we would call the peninsula. At the end of a point was an old ladder stand. And I suppose, before we go any further, I should tell you a little bit about GP and about why he factors into this story so much. Because Grandpa, he was like another father to me. He was this legendary figure in my life who was always the the hero of these stories I'd heard growing up. And he was the one who took me up to go fishing and took me up to go hunting and took me out into the woods and taught me how to move through the swamp and taught me how to hold still. He was there when I first had my first close encounter with a deer. He was there when I caught my first big fish. And he was always there with these, these lessons and these rules and these reminders of the right way to do things. And, and this was true with my dad as well, but really grandpa was the one who, who set these rules in stone, these commandments. And I remember the the line was, was drawn in the sand and you didn't cross. It It was more important how you did something than what you did. And I remember one example of this very well. I remember being up at deer camp as a young child and there were some other folks, some friends of my uh, other relatives who were up at deer camp for the first time and they did not necessarily do things the way that we did things we would come to find out and there was a buck that went running across the field in front of the cabin and one of these friends ran out and grabbed his gun and started taking shots at this deer as it ran across in front and I remember my grandpa was furious absolutely furious told him he was gonna have to leave if he would ever do something like that again because we didn't ever risk wounding an animal like that. You would never take a shot at a moving animal. You would never take a shot unless it was just right to make sure it was as quick and ethical as possible. You had to do things the right way. And that stuck with me throughout all of my years living up as a hunter. And as I'm heading out in this night, I'm 18 or 19 years old, whatever it was, and I'm slipping into that tree stand, I get there, I'm like I got to do it. I got to get it right this year. I hadn't gotten a buck at our cabin yet. There's not a lot of deer up there, but a really special place. And I remember getting to that ladder stand and slowly going up, 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 trying not to make a creek. Got to the top of the stand, and I remember thinking, where are all the different places a buck might come through here? Could they come from my left? Could they come from my right? And I remember knowing that there was a trail that paralleled that creek off to my right side, and so I tried to move and get a good shot you know, see if I could get a good shot from that direction. And I couldn't really turn very well in the stand. So I remember standing up and thinking, through. okay, if a buck were to come from that direction, what would I do? And so I practiced slowly standing up in the ladder stand, slowly spinning and having to get down on one knee and rest my gun on the armrest of this stand and thinking, through. all right, if a buck came through there, I'll make this move ever so slowly and quietly, and then I could get it. So I practiced that in all different directions. Finally, I settled in, sat down, and waited to see what the night would bring along. I remember it was a slow night, and I remember in my mind thinking, well, this is just going to be like every other hunt. This is just going to be another hunt out here where we see nothing. Maybe I'll have some birds come through. Maybe I'll see a partridge. Maybe you'll hear a coyote off in the distance, but not too likely we're going to see anything. I'd seen, jeez, Fewer bucks, and you can count on one or two hands. In all of my years up there, tonight was going to be different. And as light started to fade, it's down to the last half hour of daylight probably, and I see something off in the cattails. And I pull up my binoculars, and I see antlers. And I knew... At this point, any buck was a buck I wanted to take a crack at, so I wanted to get this buck back into view. He was straight away into the cattails. I lost him, but I had one of those little can calls, that little doe bleat can that if you tip over, it makes that sound. And I reached for that in my backpack, and the first thing I went, was to turn it over, and Meah. did it one more time, Meah. and then I waited. I don't know if I breathed. I was hoping so, so badly for this deer to turn around and then, there he was. That buck had spun 180 degrees and was walking right back towards me. I could just see his head. You couldn't see his vitals yet. I'm holding my gun. My heart's beating a million miles a minute. I'd not shot a buck up here at our cabin before. This was something that I'd never experienced here. But now he turns. And he turns back into the cattails and he starts paralleling me. And now I realize he's going to move off to my right side, to that side that I would have a hard time shooting if I didn't do this kind of complicated maneuver I'd practiced earlier. But now, I had to do it. And I could see him moving through the cattails, and I thought to myself, I could probably shoot him through there. But no, got to wait. And I don't know how long it took. It felt like a year. But finally, I, I saw him approaching the one clear lane I had. And as he stepped into that, I squeezed the trigger. And he dropped. Right there. Perfect. And I, I, I don't even know how to describe my reaction. It was just disbelief. I'd actually done it. I'd actually joined the legends of my family here. I'd I, I entered my story into the record books here at our family cabin, this place that I had grown up, where I had been taught so much, where I had kind of marveled under these adults who had come before me and taught me how to hunt and fish and be an outdoorsman. And finally, I had secured my place at that table. I would finally have a buck on the buck pole.
1: Man, do I love some whitetail stories. We're truly fortunate in this country to live in the heyday of whitetail hunting. We've got some challenges with CWD, land access, some overcrowding, but goodness, it's hard to complain. With a little work, anybody in this country can do the stuff that you've heard all these guys talk about. These deer live in our backyards, and adventure awaits those willing to grind and go. We haven't heard about any 200-inchers, and we haven't heard from any chest-banging killers, but we've heard from men of common means that I believe are all extraordinary hunters in their own sphere. And they're extraordinary, not because of the bucks on the wall, though they've got them, but because of how much they love whitetails and hunting them. They just love being in whitetail country. I can't thank you enough for listening to the Bear Grease podcast. We put our heart and soul into this thing, and its energy is birthed from a love of wild places, wild beasts, and wild-hearted people. Do me a favor this week and share our podcast with your bros and foes. And have a great week, and I look forward to talking to everyone on The Render next week. Outdoor Adventure won't wait for engine problems. Visit com. that's mauinui com, and use promo code BEAR for 20% off your first order.